have a quick announcement, and it is good news this time. I promise. First, we will be off next week for our usual break, and then I will be back with two last insight episodes to wrap things up. But then. A new-ish show will be starting on this same feed. It will be me bringing you the same types of stories in the same tone as Insight, but the main differences will be a new name and a solo host. And I want to thank those who had positive feedback on the show that I hosted by myself last week. That really helped give me the boost I needed to work out the details to keep the show going. And I want to thank the talented researchers I've hired to come on board to help me out. I quite literally could not do the show without them. So stay subscribed to this feed. The new show will be on it. You will see the name and the logo change, but it's still going to be essentially the same show. I'm not 100% sure on the launch date. I would honestly like to just pick up where Insight leaves off. But there may be a brief hiatus. I will, as always, keep you informed. Elmer and Teresa Crawford lived a quiet working class life in Glenroy, a suburb of Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. One winter morning, their car was found on a ledge at the bottom of a cliff just 15 centimeters from toppling into the sea below. What was found in the car and at their home led to a nearly 50-year manhunt that is still ongoing. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is a guest host, Jess. How are you, Jess? I am great. Thank you, Charlie. How are you? I'm doing good. So you've been in the podcasting space before, hosting and co-hosting shows, but you've recently moved into a more behind-the-scenes role. So can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So I am writing and researching for Misconduct with our really good friend, Colleen, and I am helping out Lisa from Crime and Precedence with writing some of her episodes for her upcoming season. So I know you're really good at doing the narrative writing. Is that what you like to do? That's absolutely what I prefer to do. I really like just to have a whole bunch of research in front of me, lots of information, and then be able to craft a story from there. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the story we're talking about tonight. This is one that came up in another episode that we did. We did a John Doe case, and one of the people he was suspected of being was Elmer Crawford, and that got me interested in the story. So as we're wrapping up Insight, I am kind of picking these stories that have always been on the radar that we haven't quite gotten to. And everyone knows my style by now. I like to start at the beginning, like the day everyone was born. So here we are at the end of Insight. It's not time to change that. So let's go ahead and set up what happened by first talking about the main people we're going to talk about. So let's talk about Teresa Crawford, how she met and married Elmer, and what set the series of events into motion. So Teresa, or Terry as she was known to friends, she grew up in Ipswich, Queensland in a large Catholic family. She was one of nine children. She was closest to her sister, Vonnie, who was also nearest to her in age. She has been described at all points in her life as warm and friendly, 
but also a very strong person who, at least before she married Elmer, was very independent. When Teresa was 21 years old, she made the decision to spread her wings and move to Melbourne. This was a large move. For those who don't know their Australian geography, Ipswich and Melbourne are about 1,600 kilometers apart. If you're like me and measurements mean nothing, it would take 18 hours to drive between the cities. Not only is starting over in a new city that's far away hard, Teresa came from a working-class background without money to travel around the country. So going this far from home really limited how often she would see her close-knit family or even get to talk to them since long-distance calls were quite expensive at the time. So because of all this, Teresa became quite the letter writer, particularly with her sister, Vani. Teresa found work in a convalescent home in Melbourne and quickly made friends. Melbourne had a decent-sized Irish population, and the Irish clubs would often host socials and dances. At one of these dances, Teresa met Alma Crawford. He was six years older than her and reserved in personality. Alma had been born in Canada, but grew up in Derry, Northern Ireland. His mother had emigrated to Canada at 18, and when she was 19, she returned to Derry with Alma, who was an infant. She left him in the care of her parents and went back to Canada. She later married an American, moved to Florida, and had at least one other child who never knew of Alma's existence. Growing up with his grandparents, Alma was a quiet child and intelligent, but ended up dropping out of school. At 22, he emigrated to Melbourne. Elmer found work quickly. Without a high school diploma or even any training qualifications, he started at the bottom. But he moved up to being an electrician. He was intelligent. He was a hard worker. So within a few years, he was making a decent salary. But always looking for other income sources, Elmer moonlighted as a security guard at times. And he also monitored the parking lots at the racing club where he was employed as an electrician. Part of his job with the parking lots was collecting the parking fees. The couple married after a short courtship on February 20th, 1957, when Teresa had found out she was expecting a child. Elmer had already bought a plot of land in Glenroy to build a home, so first he constructed a garage on the property. When that was done, Teresa and Elmer moved into it while they waited for the house to be finished, So shortly before their first child, Catherine, was born, the house was finished and it was move-in ready. In 1962, a son, James, was born, and then in 1964, they had Karen. Teresa's pregnancy and delivery with Karen was difficult. And when Karen was two months old, Teresa began dealing with postnatal depression. I know Insight has talked about this condition in past episodes, and I really feel like awareness of it these days is on the rise. And that's a good thing. But just because we know it happens doesn't mean that everyone is understanding about it, even today. So just imagine back in the 1960s when it wasn't talked about nearly as much, let alone understood. Not everyone's symptoms present the same way, but in this case, Teresa really did have the symptoms that we associate with depression. She had profound sadness and would find herself crying for what seemed like no reason at all. She was suffering from low energy and disinterested in the world around her. Alma, overwhelmed with three little children and Teresa's depression, took her to the doctor, who gave her what were called at the time nerve pills, though these really didn't work for her. He then contacted her parents and flew them in from Ipswich to help take care of the children in the house while he worked. 
After about three months, Teresa's depression began to lift and things in the Crawford home got back to normal. Elmer was spending a lot of time in the garage tinkering with things. He was a handyman and he was always willing to help neighbors out with little projects here and there, things like installing new outlets. If a child in the neighborhood had a bicycle malfunction like the chain coming off, they would go right to Elmer to fix it. But unlike Teresa, Elmer wasn't exactly friendly. He was pleasant enough, but he avoided most social engagements in the neighborhood. His coworkers, several who had worked with him for over a decade, only knew that he was from Ireland because of his Irish brogue. When someone would notice his accent and ask him about it, he would pretty much just blow them off and not be really willing to open up or talk about his life. So he was very intensely private. Teresa, when she came out of this depression, she was back to her usual chatty self, and she was having her neighbors over and talking in the yard while the kids played, things like that. But after having such a difficult pregnancy and delivery and postpartum period with Karen, the couple decided no more children. Though Teresa was hesitant to use birth control since it went directly against her Catholic beliefs, she did go on the pill. By 1970, the family was living a rather comfortable existence. Financially, though, it may have been a little too comfortable, considering the family's income. The house that they had built was nearly paid off. The family car and the small scooter that Alma used to get to and from work were both owned free and clear. Just seven months earlier, they had bought a caravan, also known as an RV. Alma owned properties in Queensland and had a total of $7,000 in various bank accounts, which is roughly $80,000 in today's money. Alma was considered a bit miserly, so that would account for some of these assets. At home, he very closely monitored and controlled the household spending. At work, he was known to never chip in for anything. When he did spend money, it would be on big things like tools for his garage, the caravan, or even a knitting machine. But still, none of this adds up. Even with cutting little costs, it was outside Elmer's reach to afford these big things or to tuck away so much money given his salary. It would later come out that Elmer had a side hustle or two, and none of these jobs were legal. One job was fixing and cleaning up stolen items and selling them to pawn shops. Another job was that he would skim money from the racing club. After he collected the parking fees, he would hand over the change only after putting some of it in his pocket. Like most successful embezzling schemes, it was never a lot of money at once. It was just a bit here and a bit there, but it added up over the many years he worked in the parking lot. This being a largely receiptless business, no one caught on that he was doing this. And it wasn't the only job he stole from. Elmer would take copper wire from his day job and sell it for pennies on the dollar to people who didn't really care about the legality of it. The commercial copper wire would have a rubber insulation on it that was distinctly striped that showed where it came from. So Elmer would have big fires in his backyard where he would burn off this insulation. The neighbors would report that he regularly had a fire going in the backyard and often with black smoke coming out. It's not clear how much, if anything, Teresa knew about these other income sources. I think she would have had to have been at least a little suspicious. 
there were people who did know. Some of the neighbors who Elmer would help out with small projects, he would come out and tell them that he just took the item from his place of employment. They'll never notice it was missing, so don't worry about it. And his reselling of items was frequent enough that there were some auctioneers who just would not work with him because they suspected the items were stolen. But he didn't have a shortage of pawn shop owners who weren't quite so concerned with those details. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. My business is almost like my baby. I worked so hard to get it off the ground. Starting out was the most stressful time of my life. But fortunately, the game changer has been our new Squarespace website. I was really drawn to Squarespace because of all the services they offer. And since I was doing everything myself in the beginning, it was really important for me to use a website platform that had everything included. Their marketing tools and e-commerce features have expanded our reach while making it easy for our customers to order through our site. And now, their new email campaigns feature lets me reach our customers on a whole new level, their inbox. You should definitely try it out for your business by going to squarespace.com business for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code business to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com business and use the offer code business. This episode is brought to you by NerdWallet. NerdWallet has helpful tools and tips for all things personal finance. What's the difference between a Roth and traditional IRA again? Turn to the nerds. Should you pay down debt or save for retirement? Turn to the nerds. What kind of credit card is best for you? Yep, turn to the nerds. They take the complicated and make it easy to understand. This really is a no-brainer. For all your money questions, turn to the nerds at nerdwallet.com. At some point in June of 1970, Teresa and Alma found out they were going to have another baby. The pregnancy was unplanned, except a comment Teresa made in a letter makes it sound like she did stop taking the birth control pills, so it was a possibility for her. Teresa told friends that she and Alma were surprised but happy, but a letter to her sister Vonnie contradicts this. I can understand this. You know you'll eventually be happy with a pregnancy, even if you're upset to start with, so you just put a smile on and tell people you're happy. But then writing to the closest person in your life, you let it out a little. Teresa confided in Vonnie that she was really upset and Alma was angry, but she didn't find out until she was already two and a half months along, and it was already too late to do anything about it. Abortion in Victoria had been made legal in 1969, but only in cases where it was dangerous to the mother's health for the pregnancy to continue. How it was written makes it pretty clear it would have to be serious and long-lasting health complications, but specifically physical health. So Teresa's severe postpartum depression after a previous pregnancy would not have qualified her for the service. It's unclear if Teresa would have even considered an abortion, and it's possible the, quote, too late to do anything about it just had to do with getting pregnant to begin with. It's too late to prevent the pregnancy, so the pregnancy must continue. There's a lot we could just assume by what she meant by that, and we just don't know. But this may be important to what would come next. So here we are in late June 1970. The children, who were 12, 8, and 6 at this point, were on winter break from school. Teresa was pregnant, and Elmer decided to take some vacation days from work. His vacation overlapped with part of the kids' school break, but they decided not to go anywhere. 
12-year-old Catherine had been invited to New South Wales to spend her break with her uncle and cousins on a small farm they owned, and she wanted to go. But Elmer said no, but didn't give much of an explanation of why not. Elmer was seen by a number of neighbors burning trash in his fire pit in the backyard and driving loads of stuff to the dump. It seemed like he was going to spend his vacation decluttering, clearing out the extra junk they had. He was going all Marie Kondo on it, I guess. On Tuesday, June 30th, a number of people saw the family. They said everything was normal. The only possibly odd thing was that Alma was cleaning out the family car, a 1956 Holden, and was doing such a thorough job that he had taken the back seats out so you could see straight through the boot to the front seats. Teresa had told a friend that Alma had been due back at work a few days previously, but that he hadn't gone back yet. However, Alma's job wasn't expecting him until Wednesday, July 1st. It is unclear why there is this discrepancy. On July 1st, when Elmer hadn't shown up to work by lunchtime, they sent someone out to the house to check on him. The co-worker arrived around 1.30 and the family car was not in the driveway. He knocked on the door but no one answered. He even checked the garage in case Elmer was in there like usual, but it was closed and locked. Elmer had never just not shown up for work before, but it was possible that he had his return date wrong or there was some kind of emergency. His work sent the same co-worker back out later that afternoon to check again, but everything was the same. There is this little odd discrepancy in the timeline here. So the book I used for a lot of the research on this is called Almost Perfect. But I also used the newspaper archives, and there's some fuzziness between what happened on June 30th and what happened on July 1st. So according to Almost Perfect, a television survey woman spoke with Elmer in the driveway on the 30th, but the newspapers put this as happening on the 1st. Now, Almost Perfect also says the family was home on the morning of July 1st when Teresa's Avon lady stopped by to chat. So she would have seen the family last at around... 11 a.m., if not a little later. The kids were at school, except little Karen, who was home with a toothache and hadn't slept much the night before due to it. But then by 1.30, everyone had left the house and no one was there after school when the coworker went over to check in on them. So, I mean, in the big picture, I don't think it's entirely necessary to pin down the exact times and dates the various family members were seen at this point. I just bring it up because I like to be really accurate whenever possible, but this is just one of those stories where the resources I have available just contradict each other. But let's get back to the story. The house the family lived in was next to the Salvation Army Church, and they had music rehearsal there every Wednesday evening. One of the men who regularly attended arrived somewhere around 7.30 on the 1st of July. He noticed that the house next to the church had a car pulled up out front, almost on the footpath. It stood out only because he had never seen the car parked there before. He wasn't in the church long before he ran back out on an errand and noticed the car had been backed up to the garage in the short time he was in the church. Like has been mentioned before on the show, witnesses are usually the most effective when they are seeing something out of the ordinary. It makes more of an imprint. He only noticed this because the car had just been in a different spot. The choir took a break around 8, and this man and two others were having tea and talking, when they heard a weird banging noise that seemed to be coming from the house next door. It was described in Almost Perfect as a pick or shovel hitting the concrete. The church and the house were physically fairly close together, with the garage of the house right at the fence line between the two properties. 
And that's all we hear from the Crawford home until 8.30 the next morning. Catherine usually walked the short distance to school with her friend Brenda. But when Brenda got to the Crawford home on the morning of Thursday, July 2nd, Catherine wasn't waiting for her, so she knocked on the door. Omer answered, which was unusual. He was usually at work. But then the house was also quiet, which anyone who has tried to get three kids ready for school in the morning knows is also very unusual. Elmer just said that Catherine was sick with the flu and would not be going to school, so Brenda headed off without her. Brenda may not have noticed it at the time, but the Crawford car was not at the house that day. About three hours away in Lockard Gorge, a family out doing sightseeing that afternoon at the cliffs saw tire tracks that seemed to go towards the cliff. Concerned there was an accident, they went to the edge and looked down. 150 feet down, they saw what they feared, a car that had the front end smashed in. It was on a ledge, but leaning off the side and very close to being washed out to sea. So they returned to their own vehicle and went to the Port Campbell Police Station to report the accident. The license plate of the car was visible using binoculars, so the police were able to first check the stolen car registry. Because this was before computers, it wasn't updated in real time the way it can be today. It was a list that was generally sent out every day. The car's registration and description did not show up on the registry of stolen vehicles, but if it had just been stolen recently, it possibly could just not be on the list yet. But dumping a car over a cliff like that doesn't make sense for a stolen car. It's clear that the person who made the car go over the cliff had gone to some lengths to make it happen. There was a 20 centimetre trench along the cliff that helped prevent cars from accidentally going over or from even getting too close to the edge. But someone had actually filled a section of this trench in with rocks from nearby, creating a small bridge of sorts that made it possible for the car to go over. A common joyrider wouldn't go to all that trouble. After calling in the license, the registration came back to Alma Crawford. Then the police went down to Lockard to investigate. To describe this area a bit, Lockard Gorge is a beautiful spot along Australia's Great Ocean Road. It has a sandy beach area and is surrounded on all sides by tall limestone cliffs. The black and white photos of the Crawford car at the gorge do not do it justice, Do a Google image search and you'll see how beautiful it is and why there were people out on a cold winter's day just to see it. But you'll also see how dangerous these cliffs are. They are a sudden drop off. It's literally a cliff. And in sending someone down to the car to check for people was a dangerous prospect. The town of Port Campbell had a volunteer rescue squad who focused on helping people who would get stuck on the cliffs, usually not in cars. And the founder of the squad, George Cumming, was called in. Winter rescues were not common. People weren't trying to climb down the cliffs when it was that cold, but even so, he was ready to go in no time. This was important because they weren't sure how long the car would stay on the ledge. It really could have toppled into the sea at any moment. They also only had a narrow window to get down there anyway. So first they had to wait until the tide went out a bit or it would just be too dangerous for anyone to go down. But it was also winter and the sun set early. So it was about 4 p.m. before the tide had receded enough to go down there safely, but they couldn't wait any longer than that or they'd be in the dark. George rappelled down the side of the cliff to the ledge. The car's front end was smashed in and it looked pretty obvious that the car nosedived over the edge of the cliff. 
He did notice how much of the car was really dangling over the ledge, at least a third of it, and he had to take care not to do anything that might jostle it and cause it to drop. Before he even looked in the car, he made a note of the items scattered around that seemed to have been thrown from the car. These items seemed random, a man's plastic slip-on shoe, a roll of tape, 22 caliber cartridges, and some food items. The car had a hose positioned from the exhaust pipe in the back to the driver's window. It was secured to the car's roof rack in multiple places to keep it in place. The driver's window was rolled up with the hose stuck inside, but when you roll up a window with something in that way, obviously you can't close it completely, so the small gap was still stuffed with rags. The police had already considered that the car was deliberately sent over the cliff in a suicide, and the hose from the exhaust to the cabin of the car supported that. No one was in the car from what George could see. It was possible that the driver had been thrown from the car and into the sea below since the windshield had been destroyed in the crash. Except when a driver is not wearing their seatbelt and is thrown forward like that, there is generally damage to the dashboard from the force of 100-200 pounds of person hitting it. And the dashboard did not show any of this damage. George didn't want to disturb the car, but he was instructed over walkie-talkie to attempt to take a box out of the car. He had seen it on the front seat. There was a door that opened fairly easily, and when he opened it, he could smell decomposition. He also got a better look at the interior, and he could see that there was blood in there and also a gun. But again, he did not see any bodies. The gun, it is important to note, was loaded and cocked, so it's unlikely someone had shot themselves with that gun or else who would have cocked it again. While all of this was going on, authorities called the police in Broadmeadows, who also covered Glenroy. They gave the information about the Crawford family car being found, and they sent a constable by the house around 6.10pm. The constable found the house quiet and dark. The blinds were closed, and the morning bread delivery was still sitting out in the box. When no one answered the door, he knocked on some neighbours' doors and asked if they knew where the family was, but nobody knew anything. He reported back to the station and said he could not make contact. Because of the blood in the car, authorities were quite concerned about the welfare of the family. They knew from the record search that Alma also had a motor scooter registered to him. The backyard of the house was fenced, so they asked a neighbour to go over and see if the scooter was parked there. It was. So back to Port Campbell again. Back there, they had the box from the car back at the station, and it was their only evidence. And there was a fear that it would be the only evidence they would ever get because they weren't able to stabilize the car before it got dark. There was a good chance it would slip into the sea overnight. In the box was just more random stuff. There were family photos, which would turn out to be of the Crawfords. There were some alligator clips attached to cables. There was an extension cord. There were bank books. And of course, there was the gun, which was a 22 rifle that didn't appear to have been fired recently. At 10.15 that night, the Broadmeadows station sent two officers back to the Crawford home. Something was clearly very wrong here. They knocked on the door and received no answer, but they had been told to enter the home by force if need be. The doors to the house were locked, but there was a window that was slightly open that they could use to enter through. One of the officers entered through this window and stepped directly onto the bed beneath the window. It was dark, but he made his way to the front door to let his partner in. When you entered the Crawford home from the front door, you were immediately in a hallway. The hall had blue carpet that had some bloodstains on it, and it was obviously damp. The way it looked was as though someone had tried to clean the carpet. To the right of the hallway was the living room, and found in there was a bottle of cleaner that had a brush on the top. The brush had blue fibres stuck in it, 
possibly transfer from the carpet that was being cleaned. The house was untidy, but in the normal untidy way. It didn't appear that there was a massive struggle or that anyone had ransacked the home. Let's go through the house room by room like the police did. So the first two rooms in the front of the house were the living room on one side and the master bedroom across from it. The bedroom looked normal with the exception of blood on the mattress walls, bedspread blankets, and the pillows and the floor. So the blood on the floor was between the bed and the doorway. So, you know, totally normal except for blood all over the place. The living room did not have any blood in it. On a chair next to the fireplace, a letter to Teresa's sister, Vani, was found partially completed. This was the letter about the pregnancy and how it was too late to do anything about it. And then you go a little bit further into the house and there were two children's bedrooms. James had his own room, whereas his sister shared a room. But James's room appeared to double as a storage room. His room was entirely free from blood. The girls' room was the opposite of that. Their room was the one the officer entered when he came through the window, though he didn't look around at first. He opened the door for his partner, then walked back through the house, looking for the family, and that's when they saw the blood. And a lot of it. Catherine's bed had been stripped of its sheets and the mattress was blood-soaked. There was also a pile of bloody blankets in the middle of the bed. Karen's bed still had the sheets on, but it was much the same, covered in blood and with bloody blankets piled on top. Something that struck the police as odd was that the reading lamps in all the rooms had been unplugged. It probably wouldn't have been worth noting if it was just one of the lamps in one of the bedrooms, but all three rooms had reading lamps and they had all been unplugged. It seems significant, but it didn't really fall into place quite yet. The last room in the house was the kitchen, and there was blood in the kitchen as well, but unlike the bedrooms that had a lot of blood on the floor and beds and walls, the kitchen just had streaks of blood on the floor. They weren't significant, especially not compared to the rest of the house, and it's possible there was an attempt to clean these up. There was also one bowl of half-eaten cereal with milk in it. The milk hadn't turned yet, so they figured it was fairly fresh, but that there was only one bowl is significant since there were five people living in the home. It would be odd that only one of them ate breakfast that morning. The kitchen table had the typical clutter that tables tend to attract, like the newspaper, car keys. There were a couple of handwritten notes. Two of the notes really stood out. One was a note that said, next of kin, and it was addressed to someone with the Crawford name in Ireland. And the second was a note for halting milk deliveries to the home. Now, the note hadn't been set out, and we also don't know what the next of kin note said. I've only seen it referenced to that it existed, not what it said. The last thing to note in the kitchen was an article that had been cut out of the newspaper. It seemed significant for two reasons. One was that it was a year old. Even when people would cut out newspaper articles to save back in the day, it tended not to be kept out on the table for a year. It would be scrapbooked or stored in a drawer or in a box. But the topic of the article was controversial. It was actually a series of letters to the editor discussing the topic of abortion. Like we said, abortion had been made legal in Victoria in 1969, so it's really no wonder it had taken up space in the newspaper. But the question is, why did it take up space in the Crawford family home? 
this with the letter Teresa was writing to Vonnie about it being too late to do anything about the pregnancy makes it seem like having an abortion was an option for either Teresa or Alma, or maybe it was only an option for one of them. At this point though, the family was presumed dead, but nothing conclusive could be determined without bodies. With James's room being free of blood, there was even some faint hope that he had somehow gotten out of the house. The next day, Friday July 3rd, George Cummy made another trip down the cliff to the car, which had miraculously not fallen into the sea overnight. He took other rescue squad members with him this time, and their goal was to get chains around the car so it could be first pulled to a more stable position on the ledge and then eventually hauled up the side of the cliff. After the car was on a solid enough ground on the ledge, they were able to do a more thorough examination. When they pried a door open, one of the men looked in and immediately he saw a foot. When they pulled the tarp and the blankets out of the back of the car, they found the bodies of Teresa, Catherine, James and Karen. The three children had very obvious injuries to their head, while Teresa did not. The rescue team secured the bodies and had them lifted up the edge of the cliff first while they continued to examine the car. There were some more disturbing things found. There was a rope from the steering wheel to the trunk that appeared to be rigged so that the car would drive straight without a driver. This, plus the lack of damage to the dashboard that we already talked about, made investigators pretty sure there was not a missing driver in this accident. More ammunition was found, as was more food, more personal papers, and ropes, and then there were two hammers. There was at least 12 gallons of gasoline, so that's about 45 liters, that was in the car as well. It's been speculated that the gasoline was so that the person driving the car to Lockard wouldn't have to stop for gas along the way, or it could have been seen as an attempt at an explosion, since there was a battery with leads running through the car also. So perhaps the person was hoping some kind of electrical spark would ignite the gasoline and destroy more of the evidence. So the scene at the house was horrific, but I have to imagine the scene at the car was even worse when they found four of the family members. The car was taken back to the police garage where the bodies of the family were taken to autopsy, and that's where the extent to which this crime was planned became obvious. It was confirmed during the autopsy that Teresa was around three months pregnant. All of the injuries to Teresa, except possibly a hit on the head, were from the crash. But the head injury wouldn't have been enough to kill her. She had a small burn on her earlobe and another small burn on the webbing between her thumb and forefinger. And there was an odd discoloration between these two points. It was determined that Teresa was actually killed through electrocution with the leads being placed on her ear and hand. All three children had died from severe trauma to their heads. Both Catherine and James had similar marks to their mother, and the shape of teeth of alligator clips were obvious on their skin. But the blows ahead would have been fatal, and if they were electrocuted as well, it was overkill. Karen is the only one who did not have these marks. It's also believed it was possible that Alma had electrocuted the children first, and the head injuries were just a stage of physical assault. It's honestly not clear which order these happened in. Whatever contraption electrocuted them, it was likely plugged in at their bedsides, and that explains the unplugged reading lamps. I mean, I can't even plug in my hairdryer and space heater at the same time without tripping a breaker, so you would think that an electrocution machine would have at least blown a fuse or something. An examination of the house's fuse box showed that it had actually been rigged to be able to handle more than usual without causing this issue, and that shows how planned out 
this crime was. So at this point in the investigation, they're looking for Elmer. There was no proof he was in the car when it went over the ledge. At least two people reported seeing him after the car was on the ledge. One was a passerby and the other was Catherine's friend Brenda, who even spoke to him. And this is also backed up by the July 4th edition of the Age paper. The media was already announcing that police were looking for Elmer and they gave his description. He was five feet, four inches tall. He was stocky. He had curly, dark hair that was beginning to recede. At the time this article came out, they had believed Elmer may have hitchhiked from the scene, so they were looking for someone who may have picked him up. A truck driver did come forward a month later, and he said he picked up Elmer and dropped him off at Geelong, which is a little more than halfway between Lockard and Glenroy. But the thought was it was also possible that Elmer had fit his motor scooter in the back of the car and had used that to get away. So what is the theory of the crime here? Well, there are a few. It's no surprise that Alma being responsible is at the core of all of them. The most widely accepted theory is that Alma hit Teresa while she was writing that unfinished letter to Vonnie after the kids had been put to bed. He then took her unconscious into the bedroom where he electrocuted her. He then went into his daughter's room and killed them with a hammer. Their injuries were consistent with them lying down and we won't get into any more than that. James likely woke up at some point in all of this because we know he was not attacked in his room. He may have wandered into the master bedroom because we know that's where kids go when they are scared or alarmed in the middle of the night. They go to their parents' room. That would explain why there was blood in there and not in his room. At some point, Elmer electrocuted two of the kids, though like we said, it wouldn't have been necessary. Elmer then dragged the bodies to the car wrapped in sheets. The blood evidence in the kitchen, and then there was some more behind the house, and that all supports this. He drove them to the cliffs. He knew the area because they had actually gone there on vacation before. Now, at the cliffs, he realized he had to fill in the trench where the car tires would go or else the car wouldn't go over, and he hadn't planned for that, so he improvised with the rocks. One thing not explained yet is the hose from the exhaust to the car window. And there are two theories on this, and they're both meant to misdirect the investigation. Basically, he wanted it to look like a murder-suicide. So one theory is he wanted authorities to believe that Teresa had another mental breakdown or a period of severe depression and chose to end it. She killed the kids and then gassed herself in the car and then rolled the car into the water. Now, the cleanup at the home makes it seem like he intended to go home, clean up, and then maybe report them missing as though he had nothing to do with it. The other theory is that Elmer wanted the murder-suicide to look like he did it, but his body was thrown from the car. There was a fair amount of blood found in the car that wasn't from the victims. Alma had type O blood, and Teresa and the children all had type A, and the blood in the car was type O. The blood could be from Alma injuring his hand while moving those rocks to fill the trench, but it could be that Alma planted his own blood in the car to make it look like he was in there when it went over. Regardless of the exact scenario Alma was setting up, it was ruined when the car landed on that ledge. Alma's plans relied on that car going into the water and hopefully not being recovered for some time. He needed the remains, if they were found at all, to be destroyed enough that Teresa would appear uninjured, or perhaps some of the bodies would have washed away so the absence of his own body would seem explained. We can't know what his plan was exactly because no one could find him to ask him. He may have caught wind that the car was found the next day and took off before police arrived at his house. Or else he was at the home when they first knocked and he laid low, pretending not to be home. When they left, he took off. Because his motor scooter was still there, it's believed he hitchhiked or took public transportation. 
There is no telling how much money Elmer had to disappear with. We only know what was left behind in the banks. And since a lot of his income was illegal, he wasn't exactly keeping receipts. He could have had a considerable amount of cash on him. Because he planned this in advance, he could have been stockpiling this cash for who knows how long. The motive for the crime was that he wanted out of the family life. And whenever these family annihilators come up, the same question comes up. Why didn't he just leave? And I honestly think that the answer to this question in most of these cases is control. Elmer had told Teresa she was supposed to take those birth control pills. He told Teresa how much money she could have. And friends said she was hesitant to ask him for more. Everything bought in the house was Elmer's decision. He had a garage full of expensive tools, whereas the furniture in the house was cheap and it was sparse. And my guess is the control went deeper. So when Teresa broke his rule and got pregnant, he saw another mouth to feed and he saw Teresa disobeying him. And he may have even seen the family support he was going to end up paying if they divorced. And we also have to remember that Teresa may have known quite a bit about how Elmer made his extra money. He wouldn't want that to come out in a messy divorce. Or because of Elmer's control in the finances, Teresa may have had no idea of how much money Elmer had or where it came from, but she may have hired a divorce attorney who would find out and his financial records would be looked at too closely. And none of the money there would add up to his legal income sources. A year after the crash, an inquest was held, and Elmer was found responsible for the deaths of his wife and children. He would stand trial, if they could find him. Of all the evidence given at the inquest, I think the reports of Elmer as a loving and attentive father seem the most interesting to me. We see this in the Chris Watts case from last year. For those who haven't been on the internet in the last several months, Chris Watts pleaded guilty to killing his pregnant wife Shannon and his young daughters Bella and Cece. He admitted to suffocating his children, yet so many people have come forward saying how much he loved his daughters, how they were his world, and how he was so involved. They couldn't believe he would hurt them, yet he did. Similar things came out at the inquest about Alma and his children. So how does a person go from being a loving father to murdering his children? That's not a simple question, and I'm going to guess it doesn't have a simple answer. But boiled down, it seems their loving and devoted parent persona turns out to be conditional. It's conditional on the child serving a positive role in their life. So once their child becomes an obstacle for what they really want, they are no longer loving or devoted. It's an extreme narcissism, in my non-professional opinion. Two years after the murders, Elmer was declared in the media as being the most wanted man in the state of Victoria. There were multiple sightings of him in Western Australia. And so here's another Australian geography lesson, which just doesn't need. Western Australia is actually a state in Australia. It's not just Western part of Australia, though it is in the Western part of Australia. But it takes up a third of the total land mass of Australia. So we're talking a very large state. However, there are currently, in 2019, only about two and a half million people, with the majority of them living in the city of Perth and the rest of them living around the city of Perth. So we have a lot of land that's not densely populated in any definition of the word. In the 1970s, with no digital trail to leave behind you, 
it would not be difficult to disappear into the outback. Elmer had already once built a career with no formal education. There's no reason he couldn't do it again. And another one of the reasons the Western Australia sightings are seen as a strong possibility is that one of the people who saw him in or near Perth was someone who knew him. She knew him because she had bought stolen copper from him before the murders. She was out in Perth on a vacation and saw someone she thought was Elmer. So she approached him and struck up a conversation. Now, the man said he wasn't Elmer. He was on vacation himself. And he was actually from New Zealand with an Irish accent, I guess. I don't know. The story doesn't make a lot of sense. She couldn't shake that this was Elmer, though. So she reported the sighting to the Melbourne police when she got back from her trip two weeks later. So even if this was Elmer, with a two-week head start, they weren't going to find him. There was, of course, concern that he'd hopped on a ship and returned to Northern Ireland. A rumour started going around that he'd joined the Irish Republic Army as a hitman. And of course, inquiries were made in Ireland since it was reasonable for him to have gone there, but nothing came of it. In January 1973, the media began reporting that Elmer had likely been found and he had been killed in a car accident. The accident happened in Cobram, which is an inland city in Victoria on the border of New South Wales. A man was walking when he was hit by a car and killed. The officer who was at the scene of the accident thought the deceased man looked familiar and it hit him later that day that the man looked like Elmer Crawford. The man was a fruit picker and had a few things in common with Elmer. One, he had an Irish accent, and two, his last name was Crawford. But they jumped the gun on the announcement. Yes, this Irish man named Harry Crawford looked like the Irish-raised Elmer Crawford, but Harry turned out to be his actual identity. Harold Crawford was a 39-year-old Irish immigrant who had been divorced, and his ex-wife was alive and well to vouch for him. There would be another man that many thought for sure was Elmer Crawford until it was proven he wasn't. But this was many years later in 2005 in San Angelo, Texas. An elderly man was shopping in a thrift store when he had a massive heart attack. Emergency services were called, but he passed away in the hospital. In his wallet, he had four different IDs on him. Under the names Harold Freisinger, Roger S. Smith, Gerald Brown, and Peter Turner. When they tried to run his fingerprints to identify him, they found that the center of his finger pads had been smoothed away, leaving not enough to do a fingerprint comparison. The man didn't appear to have any fixed address, so it was hard to even track down people who knew him under any of these identities. It was clear he had gone to some trouble to hide who he really was. Facial recognition between this man and Elmer Crawford showed a possible match, and some opinions were that this was most likely Elmer. This was 2005, so we do have DNA technology to work with, and the man's DNA was taken in an attempt to identify him. But the difficulty here was getting a sample of Elmer's DNA. Nothing of his had been stored, and his wife and children were dead. A woman had come forward previously, stating that Elmer was her father. She was born in Ireland and put up for adoption immediately. When she began looking for her roots, she was told her father was called Elmer. Another woman came forward as Elmer's half-sister in Florida, where his mother had later settled. But none of these relations could be 100% identified at the time. By 2010, though, they had found a known relative Elmer, and the DNA showed no relation between Elmer and the San Angelo John Doe. So again, something that seemed to be a sure thing turned out not to be. The whereabouts of Elmer Crawford remain unknown. He would be turning 89 years old within a month of this episode being recorded. 